I'll ask two things of you, those of you who are clock conscious, don't panic. And open your Bibles to John chapter 17. I believe the Lord has spoken powerfully through uh, the events of the service today. We don't want to neglect hearing from him, and yet, um, and so we want to hear what he has from his word, um, but we don't want to detract from what's already taken place. I recently began reading a, a book, I picked it up, uh, it's called the, the Book of Strange New Things by a Dutch writer named Michael Faber. Uh, it's in English, it's not Dutch, I don't read Dutch, but, uh, and the main character of this book, Peter Lee, is uh, an English uh, Protestant minister who has an opportunity. Uh, he's been contacted by an American corporation who is branching out and, and invites him to take the gospel, become a missionary to a colony of people living on the planet Oasis. Thrilled with this opportunity, he, he readily prepares himself for it, although as any missionary getting ready to go to a new area, not sure of the people that he's going to encounter, was fearful of the hostility, but the excitement was greater than the fear, and so he boarded the spaceship and arrived was pleased to find that the people he was were afraid to be, would be hostile actually were quite hungry to hear these strange new things from this strange book, which happens to be the Bible. And yet as he ministered among them happily, he also began to realize that the planet where he was ministering was making these people crazy. Back at home, he was getting letters from people he loved and saying that the earth was going further and further into decay, and so he was torn. But the gist so far, because I haven't finished it yet, is that here's a man who was excited about engaging in mission for God's glory, who had no clue what he was getting himself into. And it seemed to parallel where we have the disciples, not only the disciples of the text, but the disciples that are here today. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we see in our disciples an excitement about the mission they were involved in, and they had no idea of what they were about to get into. In fact, they didn't even know what was going to happen just a few hours from now. Jesus had been teaching them. They had celebrated the Passover, and the, he pointed to himself as being the purpose of the Passover. And now he had moved out and finished his instruction, turned his attention, and he begins to pray for them because they were going out and they didn't have a clue what they were going to face but the fact that Jesus is praying for them we should take encouragement both because of what we see in this text which we're going to touch very briefly and because through this prayer we are told that he is praying for us because as we read this passage one of the things that you'll notice is that Jesus makes a, a really a, almost an odd statement I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for the people that you gave me. And then I'm praying for those who will believe because of them. We who believe today are the ones who believe because of them. And now we are the disciples who are called and commissioned to bring the glory of God to the people who are around us. And no passage of scripture, I think, 
is more powerful than this one in reminding us of that truth. Beginning our reading in verse 6, we hear these words. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in, uh, come to, come to know in truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we pray that you would grant us understanding from your word, that we would be thankful to know that Jesus is praying for us, that we would grow in wisdom to know what he is praying, and that we would act in wisdom as we would live in accordance with the heart that is revealed through this prayer. Bless us that we would be a blessing to others and a joy to you, we pray in Christ. Amen. Now, there's really two primary things that we see here because Jesus' prayer has two primary categories here. He's talking about our attitudes and our relationships, but he's talking about our attitudes and our relationships first with one another, with other believers, and then our attitudes and our, our relationships with the world that is around us. You look at verse 11, we see Jesus' heart and, and, and what he's teaching us here, uh, what we learn from him uh, about the way that he wants believers to relate to one another. Again, he's praying specifically for these disciples, uh, but by extension, the heart would not change. And so those who are now his disciples, uh, the same truth would be what Jesus is praying today. In verse 11, he says, and I am no longer in the world. Now, he was kind of essentially saying, I'm checking out. Uh, my ministry is essentially done. I want to sacrifice in a few hours when he goes to the cross, it's completed. When he rises, he'll come back for 40 days. But uh, more or less, his ministry part is now he's moved on to the next phase. Uh, and so he's saying here, I am no longer in the world. But they, your disciples, are in this world. 
I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so the prayer that Jesus has is that those who belong to him would be one, that would be a unity between those, uh, 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 relationally, between those who are followers of Jesus. And it's not even just a, 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 a conciliatory or a friendly unity, but he specifies here that the unity that he wants for you, for me, for all believers to experience is akin to the relationship, the unity that he has with the Father. Now think about that for a moment. Because Jesus has continually taught and declared, I and the Father are one. When asked if they could see the Father, Jesus' response, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. In other words, their intimacy was so great that they were truly as one. And this is what Jesus is praying. Now, part of the reason that he's praying is because left to ourselves, this is not going to happen. This requires God to be at work. It requires divine work. And, and we know that, even as Jesus knew that, not because we need any kind of omniscience. Jesus didn't need to be God to figure out that people don't necessarily uh, naturally always get along, even if they're committed to the same thing. All he had to do was think back just a couple of weeks earlier as he was walking with the disciples and the childish squabbles they were engaged in as to who was the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And then two of them decided they don't want to play with the others anymore. They're not going to involve themselves in this ridiculous argument about who was the greatest. They went and asked their mom to come and ask Jesus if they could be the greatest instead. I mean, just the, the childish there. And we look at these passages and we laugh and think, how foolish are they? And we always forget, well, they're us. There's nothing that is in their heart that is not in our heart. There's nothing that takes place in their lives that one form or another takes place in our lives. And we live lives, even when we're committed to the same thing, that are constantly finding ways in which we can divide ourselves from being one. And we claim that Jesus Christ is the hope that we have. And Jesus tells us the way that we are unified. He prays, Father, keep them in your name. And what he's saying to us is that when I, was with, when I was with them, I kept pointing them to you, Father. And we need to understand that in Hebrew, the name represented the character of the one named. And so when Jesus saying, keep them in your name, he was saying, I was teaching them about you. I was pointing them to your character, to your heart, your desire. I'm not going to be here to do that anymore. So, God, Father, you, by your spirit, you're going to have to keep them together in your name, keep them in your character. And therefore, the name of God becomes our identity. It becomes our purpose. It becomes the source of our unity. And yet, by our very nature, we like that, but then we want to add things to the, our identity. And we divide ourselves as... Christians on the basis of political party, socioeconomic status, neighborhoods we live in, um, you know, school choice. I mean, you name it. Our creativity is astounding. And Jesus' prayer is that we would recognize that we are one. And that oneness is what we share as we are more and more drawn toward the Father. Great A.W. Tozer was challenging his congregation at one time, and he made this observation. And he asked them a, a, a question at, at first, uh, and he asked this. He said to them, do you not realize that 100 pianos tuned to a different source are also tuned to each other? In fact, they are more tuned to each other by being tuned to that same source than they would if they could become unity conscious. Uh, 
in other, and try to be in tune with each other. And what he's pointing out is that what we have this tendency is that we know that we enter into the kingdom of God, we become children of God by God's grace, in the, by believing in Jesus Christ, that he becomes our identity and our hope, and we have one faith, one back, and, and we know all of that unity thing. And then when we hear about unity, we look at other Christians and decide whether we want to be like them or whether we don't want to be like them. And even if we come together on core values and beliefs and what other things are, we are not as in tune as if we are tuned to the one thing. If a piano tuner goes and he tunes a hundred different pianos all to the same tuning fork, every one of them is in tune to the same thing and therefore in tune with one another. But if he was to try to tune an instrument to another instrument, there would be variations along the way. And what Jesus is saying here is his prayer for us is that we would be one, which requires that we recognize in ourselves the very things that we want to grab a hold of, that we are one, but we're also other from other believers, and that our focus should be on God the Father. And Jesus says here something that's also very important is that the result of that is joy. Jesus says, look, I'm praying this so that they can have not just joy, but my joy. So what's the joy of Jesus? The joy of Jesus is really, it's not the word that's in this particular text, but it's what I've been harping on for the past couple of weeks. It's the life. It's the zoe. It's the, the life as it should be. See, Jesus had joy regardless of his circumstances. He had joy even when he was in sorrow. He had joy even when he was under oppression. He had joy when he was under rejected. It's not joy in those things, but he had a joy. And we live our lives for joy. C.S. Lewis tells us that joy is the serious business of heaven. And Lewis also points out that everything we do, we do for joy. And that's not an indictment. It's the way that we are wired. I think what Lewis points out is also true for us to consider is the problem is not that we pursue our joy, is that we sell out so cheaply. We will take something that gives us minimal pleasure when something else is right there for us to take that would bring us ultimate joy and pleasure. And what Jesus is saying is that joy that we so desire, the life that we want, is found when we are won by faith in God, in the person of Jesus Christ, we are one. But Jesus says not only about the way that we're to relate to one another, and challenges us in our tendency to separate from one another, he challenges us in our relationship with the world, too. He says some things that are interesting here, and as, as we look at them, if you'll turn uh, and look here in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, so he's talking about he's taught the disciples uh, everything God has told them, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, it makes sense that they hated Jesus. They're going to hate those who follow Jesus or who remind them of Jesus who are becoming like Jesus. So Jesus is acknowledging the circumstance that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing and that some of us fear that we may experience, whether we will or not, I have no idea, of being rejected and persecuted. We may endure being mocked, but it's not quite the same as those who are truly threatened, and, and again, I don't know where we are. And he's addressing a tendency that we have, that we see through history and we see even in ourselves, and that is this desire to just kind of escape. All through history, people have 
desire to escape the threats of rejection and persecution in the world. Beginning, in, in, not even beginning, but we, we see, you know, it taking place in the monastic movements in the Middle, Age, Middle Ages and, and before that is in the third century as we see the, the hermits moving out into the Egyptian deserts. Even if you look biblically, Moses prayed, Lord, take me out of this world. Elijah prayed, take me out of this world. Jonah said, Lord, take me out of this world and don't send me to these people that I, they, they don't share your values, they don't share your views and, and I don't want to be around them. And to each one of them, the Lord said, I hear you. And then here's the Lord's response to that very real experience that people have had that we need to hear. It's found in verse 15, Jesus' prayer. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You hear the heart of God for his people here. It's understandable that we want to avoid persecution and to be escape those who might make us feel bad or potentially even hurt us. But Jesus' prayer here is not to take us out of the world. And the clear implication here, because he's not praying for clarification. It's not like God the Father is thinking, oh, when are you going to get around to praying for them to get out of the world? He, by what he's saying here, he's saying in such a way that we understand that God's purpose is for his church to be in this world, to be a blessing, salt and light to those who are around us. He's saying, I'm not praying that they take, come out of the world. Well, if he's not praying that we come out, then he's praying that we stay in. And he makes it clear the only prayer is that we keep them from the, uh, from the, uh, the evil one. Now, in this prayer, we see two things that are vitally important for us to consider, both of which are poles that, we, uh, that, that can serve as, uh, um, not as, as guides, but they, they really are, are like rocks on the sea, that if we go too far either way, we, we crash. One is the idea of assimilation, that we become too much conformity, and we keep them from the evil one. In other words, not just from persecution, but from becoming like those who reject God. Now, it's as tempting today as it is at any time to want to conform to the community that is around us, who likes to be rejected, who likes to be thought on the wrong side of history who likes to be made fun of simply because we're trying to be faithful to Jesus. But becoming like those who reject Jesus is not the answer, even if our motive is to try to make Christianity seem relevant or the church seem attractive. Because if we become exactly like that, those that we are called to bless, then we have nothing to offer them that they don't already have. And so part of what his prayer is, is that we don't become like those who are around us, but that we would be constantly tuned to God in the person of Jesus Christ. But the other side is the isolation from the world. I'm not praying that they be withdrawn from this world. And it's important that we understand that this is the heart of God, that the whole church is a commissioned body commissioned by our Lord to engage the communities in which we live and the world in which we live in order that we would take the gospel to them. It's been said that it's possible 
to go from womb to tomb hermetically sealed with like fish stickers or the ichthus things stamped on her outside. And the safety and the comfort that that seems to provide and the justification that we can give for that, it all resonates until we hear the tune that Jesus is singing in this prayer. And there is no way in which we can make that mindset of escape, of isolation, of separation from the world resonate with the heart of God for his people. Our God is a mighty fortress. The church is never intended to be. The church is intended to be a people that are resting in the mighty fortress of God. And because we have the mighty fortress of God, who is our protector, who is our strength, to send us into the world totally dependent on God, and yet to love the people who are around us. How do we do that? There are as many ways to do that as your imagination would allow. Many of you are already engaged, and I am thankful for you that you are both engaging the world and part of the body, uh, and you are an example to us. But if you are an example to us, we are also called to be an example to one another and even an example to the world. There is a sociologist named Michael Goheen who says that the church, the people of God, are called to be like the movie trailers to the watching world. And what he means by that is this. If you think about what the purpose of a movie trailer is, movie trailers come out when a movie is about to be shown or when it's time for the awards and they just want a lot of attention. But the whole purpose of the trailer is to give you a snapshot of what it's about and to entice you to say, to your, ask yourself, what, do I want to see this? Do I want to experience this and be part of it? And if it's a movie trailer that grabs your attention, then you go and you become part of the audience as you watch the movie. We are, as the church, called to be the movie trailers to the world by the way we live our lives together and by the way we live our lives together out in the community, in the world in which God has placed us. Because the way that we live and relate to one another and to the world around us is going to dictate to a watching world whether or not they have reason to want to be part of the show that is to come in the kingdom of God. That's the purpose for which Christ is praying here in this passage. That we would be a people that are one, but in our oneness we would go and bless. We do that as together. And there are ministries of this church that we do together. The homeless shelter will be coming up again and here sooner than we imagine. Uh, we engage in the ministry to uh, the, the nursing home. There's other things that we do together as a church. We encourage your small groups to find things that you can do together to bless the community. Because one of the things that is true is also is that as we serve in mission together, we also grow in our unity together. And, and so there's a, a cycle there. But every one of you is also wired with a particular passion and skills. And we would encourage you to figure out who it is in this world, in this community you want to serve. If you want to serve the homeless, great. If you want to coach t-ball, great. Go and be one who is formed by God's grace, who is tuned to God. You want to be a volunteer and welcome people at the hospital? They are needed. You want to go and serve at in a soup kitchen, do it. But as we are scattered and as we go together, we are living out God's purpose. We won't do it on our own, but we don't have to do it on our own.
because the fact that this is a prayer is an encouragement to us because it is a constant reminder to us that Jesus is praying for his people. He's praying for his church. He's praying for us. He's praying for you. Father, bless us. Be at work in us. Be at work through us. Gather us together and send us out that you would be glorified, we pray in Christ.